Nehemiah chapter 2. Last week we started this expositional series through the book of Nehemiah. And we finished up at the end of chapter 1. As we saw Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king of Persia, who was a man of God, who had godly character, and who had godly humility, and who was a great example of leadership and dedication to the work for the Lord in his day. And what an example it was for us, and he is for us even to this present day. We looked last week just briefly thinking about how that God was going to continue the renewal and the restoration of his people Israel by having Nehemiah to go back and to lead the project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and restoring the gates of Jerusalem. This was something that is for us today a, 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 a physical picture of the spiritual nature of the work of God that he is doing today with his church. It's probably the case that within every generation since the apostles and those who learned and trained were discipled under the apostles and Jesus himself, it is probably the case of every Christian generation that there is a need for renewal and restoration. Often as we go through life in our personal lives and as we go through life in history as a church, we find that sometimes the walls need to be repaired. Sometimes there are things in your life that you could look back this morning and if I were to ask you, you would be able to say that 10 years ago or 15 years ago or maybe even some of you 20 or 30 years ago, you had a passion for the work of the Lord that you don't have today. Sometimes we can run into life and going on in life We don't even realize at times that our spiritual lives get in disrepair and we need to be renewed and we need to be revived. So let's turn to chapter 2 and see as we pick up this morning on the story. In the month of Nisan, it's a month, it's April by the way. In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. (laughs) Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. 
And and, And the king said to me, queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress uh, of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the wall by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. There was no room for the animal that I was under to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. (laughs) Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. Oh, to God that we would say that today. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim. In Jerusalem. Let's pray together. God our Father in heaven. We thank you for this word. This story. That is true historically. And that is preserved. Through the centuries. By your power. And your gracious hand. So that this morning. So that today. We in this room. Would be edified. 
encouraged, instructed, strengthened for the work of the Lord today. May you do such a work in our hearts that we may be committed to your mission for our lives and for our lives together as a church. For the glory of Christ and for the good of the nations. We pray through, through Christ. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at this part of the story, chapter 2, under the heading, Acting with God's Gracious Power. Acting with God's Gracious Power. And I have four headings that I want us to think about and will help us to think through what we have just read together. Are you ready? Number one. So the first heading I want us to think for a moment about is this. Continue in persevering prayer. Continue in persevering prayer. When we left last week, Nehemiah in chapter 1, we were astonished at his prayer life. But today I want us to see that his prayer life is even more astonishing. That what we began as we looked at his prayer in a few of its details last week, we will notice first of all this morning that Nehemiah not only prayed, that God would use him to accomplish the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. But he prayed in a continual, persevering prayer for the work and the power of God to be upon him and upon the people of God to restore the walls. Now remember, the, the work of restoring the walls of Jerusalem was not just so that they could have a fortified city. The work of rebuilding the walls and restoring the gates was to further display the glory of God. To further display the majesty of God. To further put on display the people of God before the nations of the world. And so this is a prayer life that has God as the central focus and desire. God and His glory. How many of you ever prayed to God and asked Him for something? I would say that most of us in this room have. When do you typically want to receive the answer for your prayer? Yesterday? <laughs> we live in a society with microwaves for crying out loud. We can't even wait for the stove to heat up. We got to put it in the microwave. And believe it or not, the kind of lifestyle that we are living in modern day America does affect the way we think about everything in our lives, including God and including our prayer lives. <laughs> and in, in today's society, I find it so often in my life that it's easy to say a prayer. But what is not easy is to continue in persevering prayer. And one, of the, and one of the significant things 
about chapter 2, verse 1, is the discovery that Nehemiah prayed for four months. From the time of chapter 1 to the time of chapter 2, four months has passed. If you look, for example, in chapter 1, in verse 1, it says that it is the month Chislev. See it there? And so, four months later, we see him in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, in the month of Nisan. And that is the month of April. So it's sometime in April, four months later. So, what we found in chapter 1 was that in the month of Chislev, there was some people from Judah that came to where Nehemiah was in the kingdom of Persia. It says there in Susa, in verse 1, he's in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men of Judah, and he asked them, you know, how's it going in Jerusalem, and what's it like with the people of God? And remember last week, the, the, the report that he got was, the city is ruined, and the people are in shame. And so... This breaks his heart that the city is in disrepair and that the people are in shame. And he begins to pray in in chapter 1 verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How long did he fast and pray before the God of heaven over this issue? Four months. My friends, do not allow this little nugget from these two verses to pass you by. Much of the key to your spiritual development is dependent upon your prayer life. And if you have a prayer life that is more like the modern day microwave than more like the old time crock pot, You will never discover the riches of God in Christ for you. You will never develop spiritually into the mature man or woman that God is desiring for you to be. Continue in persevering prayer. We must be patient and we must be constant in our prayer lives. We often want to fire up a quick prayer to God and have an immediate answer. But it is often the case that God uses the prolonged, persistent, continual prayer in our lives to develop us and to shape us as we look into and meditate upon the Word of God. What do you think is one of the most spiritual things that you can do? You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to think about how you would answer that question. What is one of the most biblically correct things that you can do in your life concerning your spiritual development and concerning the spiritual development of our church and the numerical development of our church and the work of the Lord on earth today? What is one of the most important, significant things that you can do according to the Bible? Now, how many of you, now that you've thought of your answer, how many of you answered with this answer? And there are more than one. But how many of you thought about this? 
the, one of the most biblically correct things you can do is to wait upon the Lord. Don't let that go by you, friends. So many people today in churches and pastors, bless their hearts, have capitulated to compromise in the true and pure doctrines of the Scripture and the true and the pure mission of the church of Jesus Christ in an attempt to see immediate results in their ministries. But the people of God in Scripture and you and I this morning are called to wait upon the Lord. Let me give you, I, I could give you dozens of scriptures. But let me just give you just kind of a flyby in some of the Psalms. Because read the book of Psalms every day. I encourage you to do that. You know why? Because it's real life. The book of Psalms. Listen to what some of the psalmists say. Psalm 25 verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. How many of you could say yesterday that what you were doing was waiting all day long of the Lord? See, this is a spiritual discipline that is missing. Almost completely missing in the life of the church today. In the life of the disciples of Christ. Psalm 27 verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 31, 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way. Over the man who carries out evil devices. Psalm 37, verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Psalm 37, verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Excuse me. Psalm 38, verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God. Who will answer? And over and over and over and over again, dozens upon dozens of scriptures tell us to wait upon the Lord. Is there something you want to see in your life? Is there something you would like to see in your in a family member or a loved one or a neighbor or a co-worker's life? Is there something you'd like to see in the church? Is there something you'd like to see in the country? Is there something you'd like to see happen? For the glory of God, for the good of others, for your development in Christ, my friend, be willing to patiently, passionately persevere in prayer and wait upon the Lord. Three things continual persevering prayer does not mean. Okay, I'm going to give you three that it does not mean, three that it does. Three things continual persevering prayer does not mean. Number one, it does not remove the necessity to act with the realization of the realities of life. It does not remove the necessity to act with the realization of the realities of life. 
Nehemiah had a job. He was the cupbearer to the king. See, very often we think of prayer as being the immediate supernatural override of everything that's going on. And very often we want the get out of jail free card. When what God is going to do very often is through our waiting and trusting and praying in God, He is going to work His plan and His purpose in our life. He had a job. The king could have reacted with support or the king could have reacted in opposition to what he wanted to do. Secondly, continual persevering prayer does not remove the anxieties and fears of life. Notice in chapter 2 as he says, you know, that I had not been sad in the king's presence. And there's good reason for him not to be sad on the job because as cupbearer, if the cupbearer had a sad look on his face, it could be because there was a plot against the life of the king. And so the king would study very carefully his cupbearer's eyes as he handed him the cup or the plate of food because if he saw sweat beads on his forehead and a concerned look in his eye, it could be that he's getting ready to drink the poison and die. And so he had never been sad in the presence of the king before. And the king asks him the question, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? And if you notice, it says this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then he says, I, I was very much afraid. You see... Prayer and dependency and faith in God does not remove the realities of life and it does not remove the anxieties and the fears of life. Isn't that good? That we don't have to look out and say, what's wrong with me because I have anxieties and fears and, and, and I have these difficulties that I'm facing emotionally. We don't have to do that. We have to, we have to, courage and boldness is not the absence of fear. It is the overcoming of fear. That's what courage is. And so we see that persevering prayer does not remove the anxieties and fears of life that we face. And thirdly, continual persevering prayer does not remove the necessity to think things through in planning. If you look at verses 5 to 8 again, you'll notice that he says to the king, if it pleases the king, I'd like to have favor and I have favor in your sight. Send me back. To Jerusalem and give me the orders to rebuild the wall and to reestablish the gates. And he goes on, he says, and furthermore, if it pleases the king, would you give me the letters that I will need to go through and to pass through the tolls and to get into the city of Jerusalem and to have the letters that I'm going to need to get the timber to do the job that I want to do? And we could be tempted if we had not known that first point. We would be tempted to think maybe that Nehemiah was a quick thinker. Maybe that he was pretty fast on his feet, but that's not the case. The case is, he has been thinking about this. He has been praying about this for four months. And now the time has come. And he knows exactly what he wants to do. 
So continual persevering prayer does not remove the necessity to think things through in planning. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew what he wanted to ask. He knew what he would need for the job. Now, three things that continual persevering prayer does mean. Number one, it does mean or it does lead to providential timing and blessing. So, Continual, persevering prayer leads to providential timing and power in your life. If you and I try to accomplish the work of God in the energy of the flesh, I assure you, we will fail. But if we are willing to wait patiently upon the Lord and to persevere in confident, dependent prayer with God, God in his providential time and power, will come. He will come. So as we pray, it will lead to providential timing and blessing. He could not create this moment any faster than God willed it to be. You understand? This is massive for our lives. You're praying, first day, give it to me now, next day, I'd like to have it today. <laughs> the next day, I'm, pretty, I'm really wanting this in my life. I'd like to see this happen, Lord. Four months later, it happens. And guess what? He's ready. So many of you today, <laughs> and, and, and myself so often, I find myself, if God were to providentially bless you <laughs> and, and, and open the floodgates, we wouldn't even be ready. Because we haven't continued in persevering prayer. Number two, continual persevering prayer means we are willing to wait upon the Lord's timing and the Lord's power. For our lives. I already talked about that. Number three. Continual persevering prayer means we realize our constant connection to God at all times. So your continual persevering prayer lives gives rise to a realization that you're constantly and continually connected to God in heaven. And I see this in the fact that it says... Uh, in verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Here it is. He's been waiting on this. He's been looking. How, how am I going to leave this job? I'm the cupbearer to the king. I can't leave. And you may give me a list today and you say, I'd love to do this, but I've got all of these reasons why I can't do it. Continue in persevering prayer. And this will bring about the timing of the providence of God and the blessing of God. He says to him, what are you requesting? And he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. He shot up one of those arrow prayers. You know what I'm saying? Oh Lord, help. Here we go. This is what it was. But he could not do that with any expectation of the power and providence of God if he had not been lingering in prayer for four months. So the continual persevering prayer means that we realize that we're in constant connection to God at all times. And this is the climax of point number one. This involves the discipline of daily private prayer times and 
natural communication with God throughout the day. You say, is this really important? Let me put it to you like this. Your prayer life is probably the most important facet of your life. Whatever you are with God in prayer, both privately and corporately, is who you are at the core of your being. And if your private and personal prayer life is non-existent, then you're, listen to me, I love you, your spiritual life is non-existent. Now you might be saved, but you have no spiritual energy flowing in you and through you if you do not have a healthy prayer life. Colossians 4.2 says, quote, continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. You have times, daily, disciplined prayer and continual communion and communication with God throughout the day. They both fuel each other. The one is stronger because of the other. Now that's point number one, which is continue in persevering prayer. Number two, I want us to think for the next few moments about this. Not only continue in persevering prayer, but commit, commit to a God-honoring passion. Commit to a God-honoring passion. Look, if you will, in verse 12. In verse 12, we find him revealing something significant. It says, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one, and here it is, what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So when the king said, what do you want to do? Nehemiah was not answering the king with something that he had drummed up of his own accord. He was not coming out with some personal preference for his life. He was answering from the very core of the passion that God had put in his heart. So we, don't, we want to learn this morning to continue in persevering prayer. And we also want to learn to commit ourselves to a God-honoring passion. We must act after we pray. Not before we pray, but after we pray. And as we pray, we must act. We must put in the sweat and the tears to see the work of God accomplished in our lives, in our homes, and in our church. We must act to be willing to see the purposes accomplished. Do you want to see yourself growing in the likeness of Christ in personal holiness and effectiveness for the kingdom of God? Then you must act. If you want to see your church grow in spiritual maturity and numerical attendance, you must act. 
We will pray and we must pray and we must be patient and we must continue. But as we do, we must commit ourselves to a God-honoring, Christ-exalting passion. What are you passionate about, I ask you? What is God put in your heart to do for Him and for His glory and for the good of others? What is it? I can talk to you for 15 minutes and I will find out what you're passionate about. Because what you're passionate about is what you will talk about. You remember what Jesus said one time? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what I talk about, what I spend my time dreaming about and planning for, what I, what I prioritize in my day, we must ask ourselves the question, How can I live a God-honoring life? So everyone in this room needs to start with that general question. How can I live a God-honoring life? Would you say that just in your heart? How can I live, Lord, a God-honoring, Christ-exalting life? How can I do that? Okay. So we go from the general to the specific. To saying this. How can I live a God-honoring, Christ-exalting life in my particular context? In other words, who are you under God? Who are you? Are you a man? Are you a woman? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a dad? Are you a mom? Are you a mechanic? Are you a state road worker? Are you a nurse or a doctor? Are you a teacher? What are you in your context? What biblical passion do I have from God that I see in the Word of God that I can live out for the glory of God in my context? It's very important. As a man, how can you honor God? As a woman, how can you honor God? Because remember, we all have the same general question that we're asking. How can I live a God-honoring life? But I'm a man. I'm not a woman. So when I look into the Word of God to find how I can live a God-honoring life, I'm going to be looking not only at the general statements in Scripture, but I'm going to be looking for the specific statements in Scripture that tell me as a man how to live a God-honoring life. And if you're a woman, as a woman, how you can live a God-honoring life. As a husband, as a wife, if you're a husband, listen, you're a husband because God made you a husband. Having a spouse is a gift from God. Having children are gifts from God. And so we must ask the question, as a husband, how can I live a God-honoring life? Because so many people today are asking the question, I want to live a radical, sold-out, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting life, but they're thinking in terms of some kind of outward, flashy, up-front, in-the-public-eye ministry, either of the church or the parachurch. But what we need to be asking ourselves is, according to the Word of God, how can I, as a man, live a God-honoring life? How can I, as, a, as if you're a woman, how can you, as a woman, live a God-honoring life? How can you, as a husband, because how you treat your Your wife honors the Lord or dishonors the Lord. How you you raise your children, 
how you treat your husband. These are the things, the way you interact with the people at work. That's how you live a God-honoring life. It's not what I'm doing this morning only. It's not me standing on a platform and preaching in a public way. It's not singing. It's not building some kind of church building and saying, look at how I live with the honor of God by building that church. That's all well and good, my friends. But we must ask the specific context. I mean, the specific question of our context, who we are. At your job. You have a job. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He had a job. And he must have lived in a God-honoring way. You know how I know that? Because when he asked to go to Jerusalem, the king said, Well, wait a minute. How long are you going to be gone? (laughs) How many of you at work? If you went to work today and you said, You know, I'd like to have about three months off, you know, to go and to do this thing that that God's put in my heart. And the boss said, Sure, man. Why not take three years? Sure. Why not take forever matter of fact just don't come back at all i know that nehemiah lived a god-honoring life with his job because the king wanted to know when you're coming back and he said it pleased him to send me once he once i gave him a time of when i would come back let's ask one more question as a disciple We've talked about man, woman, husband, wife, dad, mom, vocation, job. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, what is my responsibility? That's how you live a God-honoring life. Whatever the Bible says that a disciple of Jesus Christ should do and be doing, that's how you do it. You don't have to try to create it. You have to be obedient to the Word of God. Within the context of the overall mission of God, within the context of your local church, within the context of the whole, how are you personally living a God-honoring life? Are you committed to a God-honoring passion? We must see our passion within the context of the greater work of God. Life is not just about being a morally good person. It's not. Life is not just about being a morally good person, raising children, having a home and a retirement. It's about honoring God and living for His glory and for the good of others. Nehemiah specifically was a leader. He was a visionary. And yet he could not accomplish the God-honoring passion of his life without many, many other people living out their God-honoring passion. As well. You see how it works? So I just take me for example as a pastor, a leader of a flock of people here in Princeton, West Virginia. I cannot see the work of the Lord in this church accomplished without you. It can't happen. Without you adopting and committing to a Christ honoring passion for your life. In, in your context, it can't happen. It can't happen. And so we see in verse 18 of chapter 2, this very thing. And I told them of the hand, he's talking to the people. And I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me for good and also for the words of the king. And what he had said to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work 
Oh, my friends, if you would say that, if 10% of you would say, that's me. Let's rise up and build. We'll see such a difference. We'll see such a difference. Number three, not only continue in persevering prayer, commit to a God-honoring passion, but thirdly, carry on through opposition. Carry on through opposition. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, but when Samballot, <laughs> the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. Alistair Begg, uh, he's a pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. He did a series on Nehemiah as well. I was listening to him in some of my preparation for this series. And he titled the series of his messages through Nehemiah, Doing God's Work, God's Way. And he said something that stuck out at this point for me in the text. He said that whenever God's people endeavor to do God's work in God's way, they will always be opposed. Three opponents that we have. Number one, we will be opposed by others. As we see Tobiah, as we see Sanballat. Opposing the work of the Lord. We will be opposed by other people. There will be people in your life that will not like it because you want to live and commit yourself to a God-honoring passion. There will be people that should rejoice that you are changing, that you want to change, that you want to grow in, in, in the likeness of Christ and live for the glory of God, but they won't. They will envy the fact that you want to do that. And they will oppose you. Secondly, we, be, we will be opposed by internal feelings. Fear. Doubt. Frustration. Insecurity. I can't do this. I've been trying to do this. It's so frustrating. That's an opponent. That you must carry on through. That kind of opposition in your life. And thirdly, we will be opposed by spiritual forces who use both people and feelings to their advantage against us. So the spiritual forces, the spiritual powers of darkness will oppose you as a child of God and a worker for God. And he will use people and he will use your own feelings. Of inadequacy, fear, frustration, and insecurity against you. We must carry on through that opposition if we would see the work of the Lord take place. And fourthly and finally, we must confide only in the gracious power of God. Why are you here this morning? How do you continue to breathe and think and live and move? By the gracious power of God. 
Look at verse 8. Second part of verse 8. He says, And the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Look at verse 18 again. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Then look at verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We must continue in persevering prayer. We must commit ourselves to a God-honoring passion. We must carry on through opposition. How? Only confiding in the gracious power of God. Because only through Him can we be successful. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6. God says to Zechariah the prophet. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. He says this quote. Not by might. Nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How will you accomplish the work of the passion of God that he's put in your heart? How will he help you to live a God-honoring life? He will do it through the spirit of God and the power of God who lives within you. We must act, but we can never depend upon our actions alone to be the decisive cause of our success to accomplish the work of God for the glory of God and for the good of the nations we must completely and entirely trust and confide in the power of God the passion comes from God the vision comes from God they will be accomplished only Through the power of God. So many of us are trying to make it work. And it doesn't happen. And the good news of the gospel today is this. (laughs) Thank God the good news of the gospel is not keep trying harder. Aren't you glad of that? But the good news of the gospel is. Look away from yourself. And trust in Jesus. Look away from yourself to see the God-honoring, Christ-exalting passion that God has put in your heart come to pass. To see you converted and growing in the likeness of Christ. To see you as an effective, faithful witness of Jesus in this world today. To see you as a disciple-making disciple for Christ. Proverbs 21, verse 31, I leave you with this verse, says this. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. You can have the nicest battle horse on the field. You can have the nicest fighter jet, the best gun, the best Weaponry, but the battle is the Lord's. So it teaches us two things. Not only get the horse, 
You can use the means of grace. Get the Word. Come to church. Pray continually and passionately. Read and meditate upon the Word of God. Commit your heart to do that which God has placed in your heart. Persevere and carry on through the power of God. But lean and trust and confide only on the gracious power of God to bring about the success that you desire. You can have the horse, but trust in the Lord. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look again into the life of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, to look again into the life of a godly example of a leader, imperfect as he was. We thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you for his example of continuing in persevering prayer. We thank you for his example of committing himself to a God-honoring passion with his life. We thank you for his example of carrying on in the midst of opposition, hard as it is. And we thank you that in it all and through it all and above it all, we see that his confidence was in the power of your gracious favor in his life. May we be no different than him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.